0: It is funny that several reviews of my book have said that they like the story but they don't realise they're Jane Austen plots. They'll just say they're 19th century plots. I'm like... No, no,
1: no, they're actual... They're
0: they're actual Jane Austen novels. This is not fiction, this (laughs) bit.
1: Hello and welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. You are listening to part two of a two-part series with Paula Morris. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you a bit about Rocky Ridge, the essay about Laura and Rose Wilder, and it's, a lot of the essay is about how the books got written and who was doing the writing, what the writing. Of the work kind of was and I wondered how much you think that matters so the question of who has done what or what is the authorial hand behind something how much should we play that into works of art when we are reading them or looking at them or whatever we're doing
0: because different people have different views on it I do lots of ghostwriting as you know and often it's for Hollywood people who have a very different notion of what writing is. They see it as a collaboration. So they have no issue with, well, you write it and then I'll take it over or I've written it, now you take it over. And to them, that notion of writing collaboration is, is really normal. And I do think sometimes people can be a bit precious about the writer. The writer must be in the garret, you know, wearing the, the feather hat. <laughs> and holding the quill pen. I didn't think
1: feather hat was what you were really? going to say. Yeah. I had, I had, I had Emily Dickinson. I think in my mind wearing some sort of
0: linen frock. No, oh, yeah, well, there's the linen frock brigade. You know, very austere. They hardly eat anything. You know, because they're too busy being ecstatic. And I think that that's a really romantic myth about the writer. Most of us don't live in that world. We're rushing around at the supermarket and other things like that and often writers that we the
1: tiny snacks that we do consume just (laughs) gruel
0: thank you for me um often the writers that we think about in terms of what marvelous lives they lived where they could just write it was because they had family money that's why that's why they could write like that um it's just not very realistic about authorship I do think, and I'm quite persuaded by the new biography or the recent biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder um, that won the Pulitzer Prize, that the work was mostly Laura's, but Rose was a very good editor and polisher. What I object to is when Rose got too much of her hands on things and changed things for her political purposes, and she does that in Little Town on the Prairie in a section that even when I was young, stuck out to me as very odd. And it's a complete change from Laura's original manuscript, where Laura and and her father and sisters go in to see the July 4th fireworks. And Rose inserts this big patriotic speech and feelings about liberty and God. and It's sort of all this libertarian propaganda that's very much of its time, the 30s and 40s, and that kind of thing, where I feel that Rose got her hands on the books too much... I find that yeah, troubling as a as a word I
1: suppose. So in some ways, if I can reflect that back to you, you're saying where the voice of the work remains true, it doesn't matter so much whose hand it is behind it. But where someone kinda of breaks through that voice and inserts something that doesn't belong there because they weren't the person who had the kind of Um, you know, what's the right word, sort of germ of the idea.
0: But it transcends editing. I mean, if you look at Rose uh, Wilder Lane as the editor of the books, you know, the first editor of them, she did a very good job in many respects, but she often went further than that, and the fact that they are Laura's work rather than Rose's is, is evident by looking at Rose's own fiction, which is really not that good. So She didn't write the Little House books because she wasn't that good a writer. Working together on the books sort of destroyed their relationship as mother and daughter. But Rose was a very strange and difficult person, very controlling and very uh, mentally volatile, I think emotionally volatile. And she also became a complete right-wing nut. I mean, Laura was conservative, but... Rose was an extremist, an absolute extremist. And it's a shame that she got to meddle so much with certain things. However, other elements of her instincts to do a story were quite strong. I wonder if she's the kind of person who, if she got an editing job at a publishing company, could have had a very good career and been very very satisfied with it. But instead, she wrote a lot of trash herself, a lot of just work for hire Sometimes I worry that that's what people will say for, about me in later life. You know that she just did a lot of work for You're hire. you a deranged right wing activist. Well, just uh, deranged and did a lot of work for hire and didn't do her own work. But, but hopefully not. I won't become a libertarian anyway.
1: Right, not anytime soon. No. <laughs> so thinking about your own writing again, and actually, you know, when you line it all up, there's quite a body of work there, especially for someone who started, you know, didn't head off to do their MA at the age of 20 and start this, you know, journey. There's such a sense of glee in some bits of your writing and I was thinking about the story premises which is just hilarious and ridiculous and as script writers trying to rewrite a premise and just stealing bits off Austen and kind of... Well, there's all the Jane Austen novels novels,
0: yeah. Go through them all in order.
1: And how much fun was that to write?
0: Well obviously I'm obsessed with the novels of Jane Austen so it was actually quite easy to write because I know all the plot details though so I did have to check how many sisters and how many letters were in every given book but it was a huge amount of fun to write and other people who are Austen fanatics really like the story. It is funny that several reviews of my book have said that they like the story but they don't realize they're Jane Austen plots. They'll just say they're 19th century plots. I'm like
1: they're, no, no, no! They're actual, they're, they're,
0: actual, they're, they're <laughs> actual Jane Austen novels. <laughs> this is not fiction. This bit <laughs> I mean, it starts with Northanger Abbey and goes through to Persuasion. I mean, it's and then we end up at the Brontes at the very end because the 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 bosses of the scriptwriter and the um, yeah and the story want more want more drama. They want Madwoman in the attic. But um, it was enormous fun to write. I abs- and but I, again, with that, I'd been playing around with the notion of the word premises for a long time, thinking premises as in houses, because I thought about the houses in Austin. I was just talking to the very fine young poet Sophie van Waldenberg the other day about Jane Austen, talking about Mansfield Park, the house at the centre, and Fanny is the sort of the moral centre of that house, and really interested in the premises and Jane Austen's works. And
1: you get such, or well, I get such clear views of... The premises as well And how different they are from each other And how much, you know, when Charlotte goes off And she's really married that house And there's that scene where Elizabeth thinks Oh why? oh I see she's chosen this less desirable room Because she won't be bothered by her husband Because he's out front looking towards the big house You know, and all of the politics and class And, you know, sexual politics and gender politics That are wrapped up to share
0: economics. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's right. It's, they're just fascinating, aren't mm-hmm. they, the houses of Jane Austen. Are, are any of them real and have you visited any of them?
0: Well, I've been to uh, the houses associated with uh, Jane Austen where she lived because um, I have a very good friend who lives near there. So we've been to the little church where she worshipped and to the house where she wrote a lot. And obviously we've been to Winchester Cathedral to see to see her grave and things like that. No, I absolutely love her. Yeah, Sophie said the other day that she was reading Persuasion for the first time and I was so jealous.
1: I know, I was going to say, what a joy.
0: I know, really jealous that someone could be reading it for the first time. And I wanted to rewind to being a teenager and be able to read them all for the first time. One of my colleagues told me she read them all when she was six, which made me feel a bit thick Because when I was six, I was reading, you know, Secret Seven
1: books. Well, I couldn't read when I was six, so there you go. (laughs) I couldn't read till I was eight. I just want to take a little diversion into Anne of Green Gables since we've talked about Oh,
0: That's my sister's. So my sister's the Anne of Green Gables person. She absolutely loves Anne of Green Gables and PEI, Prince Edward Island, but I never read them.
1: Really? No. You still haven't read them? No. So I have been rereading them because Hayden Glass, the fine proprietor of the shop, well, actually, no, it wasn't even him. It was Sharon, who is the manager of the shop, gave me a complete set because they came in and she said, we can't sell these, they're not in good enough condition, but would you like them? And I said, oh my God, of course, I would love them. So I took them home and I've been rereading them and I just say what really struck me to this whole view of looking back at the past and, you know, is how female-centred they are, what female-centred worlds they are, and how the first story, which when you read as a young person looks like the story of Anne, is really... A huge part of it is the story of Marilla, the woman who adopts her and her coming to life with this young life. And then and Matthew, who's Marilla's brother, exists only long enough to catalyse the relationship between Anne and Marilla, which could never happen otherwise, and then dies in the field because he's now disposable <laughs> and he was too easy, you know. And then Anne goes on and she goes to university and she, you know, it's really... Fascinating mm-hmm. to go back and read and think. Oh, you can put this lens over these and go. They're just so female focused. They mm-hmm. don't really spend a lot of time on men at all. So that part and it's so soothing to read. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, I'll get your sister on to talk about Anne of Green Gables. But she that's have so. Do that. Will you never read them then? No, I will. I will. Well, I've got the full set, you can borrow them if you like. I think
0: my sister has as well, because, yeah, she really loved them. I was more of a What Katie Did person, I liked all of those. The Eleanor Estes books, like about the Moffats. There were Five Dolls in a House, the Helen Clare series, I loved those as well, in fact, I still love them. I just, I suppose one reason I'm a little bit reluctant, probably, when you say Anne of Green Gables, is just because it, upsets and unnerves me that so many of my university students and not just here but other places I've taught as well or visited are still reading children's literature as their primary form of literature when they're at university. So they're still very wedded to Harry Potter predominantly but also to sort of teen YA novels I mean, I'm someone who's, I've published four YA novels and sold many more of those than I've sold of, you know, my adult fiction. But at some point, you need to start reading something else. And you would hope that when you show up to university, you might have got around to it. But, I mean, I got into a terrible nonsense on Twitter some, some months ago. I'm always having... St- it
1: hardly ever happens on Twitter, that yeah, sort of I know. thing.
0: <laughs> I'm always getting into stousias, stumbling into them stupidly. But- stumbling in, fists up. <laughs> but I said something that I thought was pretty innocuous about YA literature. I said, it's written for teenagers, not adults. And really the vitriol that came down on my head, including people asking if I was mentally ill and if I was trying to sabotage my own career as a YA author and someone saying they would now throw out my books because of all these adults. You said, good. I I don't want you to have them. Well, I said, you've already bought it. So there's no skin off my nose, really, whether you burn it or not. Really, I don't care. They were furious and people contacting me, are you having mental problems because you have just sabotaged your entire career? I'm like, yeah, don't think I have actually, but, and what career is this? But they were so angry that I would just say they're written for teenagers, not adults. Now, it's not to say that adults don't buy them because often adults are the ones buying the books for other people. But they, you know, when I write a YA novel, I've got kind of a 14-year-old girl, kind of a bright, good reader, Who's interested in things, she's the one I'm writing for. It's not someone who's thirty two and has a blog about YA fiction. I'm not writing it for that person. And actually read what everyone should read whatever they want, of course, but there's so much fantastic literature. I mean, we're sitting here in the open book, surrounded by books. I'm quite distracted by them thinking, Oh, oh, I'd like to read that. I've always meant to read the shop that. Shop is always open <laughs> I'll give you a discount. I mean, it's so fantastic. You just see all these books and you think there are so many riches in adult literature. At some point, you have to move on. It doesn't mean you reject the books you've loved or that you don't occasionally pick them up again and go back to them. I just reread Five Go uh, Five Go Away in a Caravan, which actually was very pacey, despite being quite racist and really sexist. But anyway, um, you have to move on. And I, I sometimes feel a bit sad
1: and what do you say to these people if they are your students your your writing students what? how do you sort of phrase this challenge back to them
0: so grow up
1: and how does that go what not really well kids? it doesn't
0: go down well um well some people I, I, I some yeah. people are fine obviously some people though really you have to grow up at some point and I have to say so when I was at university as an undergraduate I was still probably on the sly reading a lot of the children's literature I love because we kind of go back to it. It's very reassuring and you remember how you... I mean, if I can think back to when I first read The Chalet Girls at Camp, one of my favourite Chalet school books, by reading it again, I can remember that feeling of being a certain age and reading it. So I completely understand that. But at some point, you have to get into the much more complex world of adult literature much more complex, you know, in terms of form, but also more complex in terms of psychology and emotion. And people who completely resist it, I think they're resisting the complexity of the world. This is not at all to undermine YA literature, because obviously I write it, and I think there's some excellent YA literature around, but it's called YA for a reason. It's a young adult. And at some point, you need to push on really with your reading
1: and it's certainly for me going back and reading the end books is just such a sensation of comfort it's incredible and I'm pleased that they I was anxious about rereading them because I wasn't sure how well they'd stack up you know, oh, absolutely, sort of politically yeah. or in their writing or whatever. But I was laughing out loud at some points mm-hmm. and there were bits of characterization that I had missed completely as a 14-year-old. And now I'm like, oh, that's very sly. Like, that's great, you know. Because the Eden
0: Blyton stories are good stories. Yeah. I mean, they're really, they're exciting. Yeah. Lots goes on. Yeah, There's suspense. I mean, yeah, they're full of stereotypes, but, you know, you can't have everything.
1: So... I wanted to ask you, as well as the sort of gleeful bits um, that we started this, this this long escapade with, the hard bits that are in False River as well. So you've got the death of parents, which comes to us all in time, Hurricane Katrina as well, which, you know, is quite a standout experience to have had and quite a resonant experience in, you know, in the culture that we exist in, I think, as a mark of something happening. What is the purpose of writing about these things for you or for others? What are you doing by bringing these things to the page?
0: Well, I mean, talking about the essay I wrote about my father called Sick Notes, I mean, there's a lot about children's literature in that because I realised at some point that a lot of the children's books I read and really liked, the heroine was sick. And I was sick a lot when I was a child, partly because I didn't want to go to school and partly because I was actually asthmatic, but um, and and suffered from all sorts of things, but mainly, you know, not wanting to go to school.
1: A terrible disease. One one recovers as one ages, yeah, often.
0: Unfortunately, but with that, my father was dying, and we were all writing in an exercise book that the hospice nurses had given us. And so, and I was thinking about sick notes and all the sick notes I had. And in fact, it was the last day of his life. I was sitting in the hospital for hours and hours. And the only way I could really get through it was to think, this will all be material for the piece I'm writing, which is called Sick Notes. And that was how I got through that day. That's how I got through it. But, of course, it turned out to be a much worse day than I could possibly have imagined. And I actually find that essay now, for me, unbearable to read.
1: I I dipped back into the book again the other night, actually, and pulled that piece up. And I thought, you know, God, I mean, death in itself is so often, you know, the physical aspects of it are so kind of horrifying, but then to be surrounded also by all these other people who are going through their own totally unprivate hells that are mashed together. You know, yes, yeah. In a
0: public hospital. Yeah, and death is an ugly thing. It's not I don't I don't One buy the whole piece and angels. And no, no, no. There's no slipping gently. It's but I wrote that sort of as a tribute to my father as well, I suppose. And also because when he was still alive, the last days of my father's life, I kept asking him questions because you suddenly think, oh, my gosh. So I said to him, was I really sick when I was little? Because no one can tell me. And he said, well, let's put it this way. The first place you was looked for in a new school was the sick bay. So (laughs) I still didn't really have an answer to my question. But... Yeah, an essay about my mother talking, it's called Women Still Talking, which began life as a short story I wrote for Takahe and then I expanded it and realised it was really an essay, not a story, um, because it's full of uh, conversations I had eavesdropped, because I, I'm a terrible eavesdropper and write things down in my notebook. If you see me sitting somewhere writing things down, it's generally something I've heard. And, and so it's a stolen story in many ways.
1: But I, what are our parents there for, if not for us to steal their lives steal for them. our
0: material
1: and their deaths?
0: And then writing about Katrina, City in Ruins, I'd written some bits and pieces. I'd written a, a short chapter on the evacuation for a book I wrote called On Coming Home that was published by Bridget Williams Books in 2015. But I knew that there was more to write about it because I had at the time been writing blog posts, not for my own blog, but for someone else, which was sort of just reporting, really, from day to day of evacuation, interviews I did, people I talked to, things I saw, and I wanted to put it all together. And also because um, it all came around in a full circle to the very first story of the collection and the the name of the book, False River, one of the storylines in that is, is a story I heard during that evacuation And then it's also a tribute to my really dear friend, Sarah Durrie, my best friend in New Orleans, one of my closest friends in my life, who died not long after we left there. And the story, False River, is a tribute to her. So I suppose there are lots of ghosts in the book, one way or another, but hopefully lots of laughs as well. And she was a funny person, Sarah, so I got to have my fun with her in the story and all her ridiculousness. But, you know, I wanted to write... I suppose in a collection like that you get to really write quite dark, you get to write quite funny, you get to write everything in between. It doesn't have to have the standard tone of a novel where you've got one tone and you're going to work it all the way through. You can have all sorts of different moods and moments because you know that people are probably going to dip in. They're not necessarily going to read it all the way through. As a collection, some people are going to read it out of order, obviously. I know a lot of people just read the Laura Ingalls essay first because that's what they're really interested in. They heard me talking about on the radio or something. Um, But I liked that sort of tonal variation.
1: And how does it feel to be making art from this very raw piece of life as well, like getting the craft layer over the top of it?
0: It's the discipline that you apply to the raw emotion that makes it readable. It's... Something I deal with a lot in teaching, especially sort of new writers, that you have to have some ruthlessness with the material, that it's not just enough to say, I had a feeling, I had an experience, but to take a step back from be able to shape it into a narrative and then, as I said before, to to make it something that people who don't know you will want to read and not think you're the most awful person in the world. Or maybe they will, and that's Okay. But you have to be a writer in there, not just the person having the experience.
1: And so in some sense, sitting there in that room thinking, oh, this is material. I mean, I remember having a very similar sensation at my mother's deathbed and thinking, oh, well, wow, great, dead mother. I'm going to get a lot of work out, you know, I'm going to get a lot out of this, right? And it's interesting, I feel, you know, people die and they've, given we give up our rights to control our image after we die you know Mm -hmm. and and I've written things about my mother that I wouldn't have written when she was alive and I think oh well you know you've you've let go so (laughs) Mm -hmm. I can say what I want now not that I said anything terrible about her but you know it's there's a certain these sort of great losses that leave a hole in life are then what you kind of write into as well. Mm -hmm. And as a writer, you're doing that to everyone. You know, you're taking all the people around you and using them in different ways. And that's, you know, if you want to be safe and have that never happen to you, you need to not get entangled with a writer, I think, is
0: probably what I would say. Also, to go back to reading, a lot of people want to, well, not a lot of people, but some people want to protect themselves from books. They don't want to, they want to be told In advance, there's going to be difficult subject matter. There's going to be people of whom we no longer approve because they no longer have the right kind of ways of seeing things. And I think reading is about looking at other people's lives and experiences who don't live in your century or your country, who do things that you would never do, who do things that you wouldn't want to do, who are people that you are not. That's the joy of reading. It's not just about reading things that won't challenge or upset you. And so as writers, I think, you've got to sometimes write the things that challenge and upset you as well. You have to go to the dark places, otherwise you're very much on the surface. And just, it's very superficial. It's the difference really between complex taste and food and one that's sort of a sugary hit. It's fine, but it's not as satisfying
1: It's not as grown up, is it, either? I mean, Mm -hmm. this goes to the growing up point, right? Part of what we do as we grow up, as we continue to grow up through life, is look at some of these hard parts Mm -hmm. and deal with them and manage them. And if you are a writer, one of the ways you do that is by writing. And also, if you are a writer who thinks of yourself as a crafts person, as someone who writes for an audience, then you add that layer onto it as well. And you've mentioned your teaching now. You've been a teacher of creative writing for quite some time, and I wanted to... since we were at Iowa. Yes, that's right. Since we were at Iowa, two thousand
0: and three, two thousand and four is yeah. my first year of teaching.
1: Yeah, a very long time ago it feels to me now. What has changed in your teaching over that time, and what do you know about teaching now that you didn't in Iowa in two thousand and three?
0: My patience level has probably gone to hell. Um, I think. I'm much sterner now about things. I did a talk earlier this year at the Art Gallery and talking about basically trying to discourage people from having ideas because people say, I've got an idea for a story. It's like, well, that's killed it right there because they've got ideas for a story, but they don't have characters and they don't have a setting and they, don't, they have an idea and then they can't write the story because essentially they've got a premise you know, or a what if, but they haven't really got anything there. Um, and they think it's all about the idea when it isn't. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, well, "I just found your what you were saying was very prescriptive about." And I said, "Yes, yes, it is. Really, it's like I've
1: read so many But if so you don't like it, you can, it, you, you, you can just go off and <laughs> write your ideas. Do in whatever another room, you want. Right? Do whatever you don't want. Don't bother me with them. If you're going to do a <laughs> class
0: with me and you're going to write a bad story, and it's really it's empirically bad, then." I'm going to tell you the truth. Now, I say to students, what we do in terms of courses, I'm talking about undergraduates here and community classes. I do things I do at schools. I mean, it's not the real world. It's just the context is the class you're taking. It doesn't really have any impact on what you're going to do in a bigger way if you continue writing. And with my master's students, I'm their supervisor, but I don't examine them. So I give them my advice and they can take it or not, you know, and then the examiners might think something entirely different. And then beyond that is this whole other world to do with engaging with the publisher, obviously, that that might think differently from me, stupidly. But I'm better and more focused about teaching aspects of technique. I've always been a big person on teaching aspects of craft I think it is what people do courses for if they're going to do a creative even if it's just a one-off weekend class they want to study point of view and character and setting and dialogue and use of language and narrative structure that's what they want because Often you just need someone to say a little something and it will open windows for you.
1: Because if you're a reader and you've read, actually you've read these things, but often, I mean, what I find is when I'm reading something that is amazing, I'm just absorbed in it. And Mm -hmm. I come out the other end and I'm a bit like, oh, you know, that sensation of like, well, I've been somewhere, I'm back, but where was I? And it's incredibly difficult for me to Mm -hmm. think what was that person doing? Mm. What was going on? How were you they know? doing it? Yeah, um, And then I go and read an essay about something or something, and I thought, oh yes, of course that's what they were doing, you know, but I'm in the moment of reading, I can't see that but that casting of perspective, I guess over things mm. or offering of um, you know, language and categories to talk about things, mm. oh I can recognise what's happening here now when I see it you And know, just, it so just being able to good. close
0: read and to read as a writer, yeah. so we do it I mean, I think I probably spend much more time on close reading now because it's just very valuable. And what do you mean by
1: close reading? So what, what does that mean?
0: Well, to open a book, you know, a short story anthology or whatever to a page or to use an excerpt from something, which I often do, to look at specific things like, say, a book's opening or an ending or an emotional and dramatic moment, which is my big thing, um, and then look at it word by word. And the shape of the sentences, the rhythm of them, the length of words, the words chosen, the cumulative picture, rather than just race through something reading to find out what happens. You know, that Billy Collins poem, I don't know if we're allowed to mention Billy Collins, but a a poem about reading a poem and saying all the things he'd like the reader to do with the poem, including, you you know, skiing across its surface... And he says, but all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair and beat it with a hose to find out what it really means. And often I find in classes that people will have just raced through something and then they want me to tell them what they need to know. And last semester... you like, the book's already been <laughs> yeah, written. Yeah. I, I, I,
1: you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm on the outside like you, our love. There's
0: a, a William Travis story called On the Street, um, which is on the New Yorker site, and I've taught it a number of times. It's a fantastic story because it's a good example of one where you need the two points of view to make it work and not just because you've written yourself into a corner. But the, the story tells you the thing you need to know in the story. The main thing you absolutely need to know, the mystery, is there on the page and 90% of the people to whom I've taught that story miss it. And they'll say, well, it's quite ambivalent at the ending. I say, no, it's not. Let's read these words, shall we? Oh, oh, and it's like, so many people have missed it because they were just racing through and not thinking you know, a writer like William Trevor wants you to pay attention.
1: Nothing's there by through. accident. No, it's
0: not just like here's some filler till you get to the end. Just get, just race through that last page because you're just trying to get to the last paragraph because you'll miss the key thing that absolutely tells you the essential thing you need to know in that story to make sense of it. So one of my students last semester said, so were well, are you talking about is slow reading? And I said if you like we can call it that but really it's just reading but it's reading with attention and then from the point of view of a writer so you're not you know trying to find themes and meanings and symbols and though you know some might pop up but you're actually wondering why the why the author used this word instead of that why a sentence ends when it does why the scene ends when it does if dialogue's rendered or in scene or summary that kind of thing
1: and surfacing those as all conscious choices, right, which mm. when you're reading not as a writer, you know, barring some types of literature that are trying to make you think about that, you know, the idea, like, oh, it's this amazing thing that's kind of appeared in the world mm-hmm. and there's no need to think about how it was made. But if you are actually trying to make such a thing yourself, understanding it. Like how do you make it? Yeah, how, how does it actually work? How and then
0: else? some of it has to be instinct. You have to at some point develop an instinct. You, people ask all the time, you know, how do you know when? How do you know when the scene has ended? It's like, well, you just have to feel it. You read it through and you think, does it need another moment? Or have I gone on a little bit too long? You have to develop that instinct. And if you can't develop that instinct, you can't develop it. No one else can do it for you. I studied weaving last year, as we were saying, at Te Wananga in Mungari, with a very good teacher, Hazel Grace. Um, and what a beautiful name. Oh, she's fantastic, Hazel. Hazel would take control of your terrible work and fix it in seconds when you had spent eight hours sort of unpicking it. But I mean, as expected, I did really well on the the accompanying research book we had to do. But on the practical work, I was not naturally gifted, shall we say. And yeah, I was getting a lot of achieved, but that's okay.
1: Lucky you don't have
0: to weave your own clothes. <laughs> Spoiler, no, no, otherwise I would be semi-naked. But
1: but I'm she's fully dressed, I listeners. Am, she's fully dressed. I'm
0: still working on a feather cloak, and people are vastly impressed by it. That's I'm,
1: incredible. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's taken me you know a thousand hours so far, and still isn't finished. But but at some point, you know, you have to accept what you're good and not. I've got better at it. You can actually turn the cloak over and see how the lines get more even. record of of practice. It's really the practice. it, It makes a difference to the mahi. So it's different from writing, obviously. But some things are still essential, that some people are going to have more of a natural gift and other people are going to have to practice a lot harder. And sometimes we practice really hard at things and we're never going to be that good. I enjoy weaving. I am better at it. Maybe someday I can make something for someone else that will look respectable and it will be a gift because they will never be able to afford the amount of hours I put into it. But, but writing is is the thing I can really do. So,
1: and there's professional pride. I mean, I really agree with what you've said about understanding what you're good at at a level that you can say, "Oh, this is a thing that I do professionally." You know, this is a, yeah. this is a skill I have that I've practiced and that I have a natural bent for, and that really, you know, actually, I, I've got some expertise in this area. And you can also do other things, which you say will oh, even help us. But, man, I love it and I'm learning yeah. things and it's, you know, amazing practice for me. And well, it got me drawing kind of again
0: because I, I had to draw things, design cloaks. I really got into it. Now, I'm not a good drawer, but I'm better than I thought I was. And others were saying to me, oh, you're so good. I'm like, really? Not really. But, but just the – and also just going to places and thinking, oh, I could make something out of this – It made me much more aware of what I could do with my hands aside from type. So I really enjoyed it. But the idea of writing is my profession. It's the thing I am. So when I teach, you know, often often people don't realise you're a writer. They get all excited if you get another writer to come in. Oh, it's really great to meet a writer. It's like I don't know what I am. But it is what I am. And once when I was teaching in England... Some sullen student, after I'd said something critical, he said, well, that's your opinion. And I said, well, in the old days, it used to be called expertise, actually. I have expertise in this area. And when Hazel said to me, yeah, this isn't very good, is it? (laughs) I wouldn't say to her, well, that's your opinion, you know? Now, I know that there is less give and take when you're weaving a kate versus writing a short story. Because it's,
1: it's actually not holding the potatoes. Yes. I mean, when we say it's not very good, we mean there's no bottom.
0: You've made no bottom, right? Or well, you've missed that and it's really obvious to everyone and you're trying to hide it. But I, I never really questioned her expertise, even when you know, discussing the design of things. And I, I did something that I know she doesn't really approve of because my cloak's supposed to look like a silver-eyed bird. So I was a bit too literal about some things. And, and I want to put black buttons on for the eyes. And Hazel does not want me to put black buttons on for the eyes. And I suspect Hazel will win. But I said to her, I, I spent a lot of money on those buttons. They were like $8 each. She said, mm, mm, I don't think cannot. so. But I, I, will, I will bow to her expertise, actually, because she has a better instinct About what will look good than me. At the moment, it's just me like a little girl, like sticking extra stuff on.
1: Has it got glitter?
0: No, it's just all feathers. No glitter yet. Next cloak, glitter. I tried to make uh, a kete out of glittery pipe cleaners. Hazel warned me that it was a fool's errand, but I did not believe her. So I brought it in. And you'll see, if you look in the box in which it's discarded, with a number of other attempts at using glittery pipe cleaners to make kate. No, it doesn't. It it could work if you had the patience of a saint in 100 hours, but it was was just ridiculous. So my visions of it, but we did end up with glitter everywhere. Yes, it does
1: get everywhere. As the mother of a small daughter, I'm familiar with the troubles of glitter everywhere. So I have one last question for you, which is how did you come to writing? What is the origin story of Paula Morris, writer, which is what you are now?
0: Wrote loads at school. But, you know, when I was a child, I wrote a lot. I wrote, wrote and and I read a lot. I always felt ashamed that those are my only hobbies and interests. You know, when people say, what are your hobbies?
1: What did you do on the holidays? Well, I, read like I read books, I read
0: books and I, I wrote stories. But I stopped writing for much of my 20s because I was working, so I wrote for work. So I was uh, a publicist, I was um, a product manager, I was a vice president of marketing I was a branding consultant then I was a copywriter and so I was writing for all of that but it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started writing stories again
1: and what was that why what happened
0: so I had a, a job in a record company that was on Times Square and I had a 40th floor corner office looking out over Times Square sounds
1: and, okay yeah I
0: was really miserable I was only more than I earn now so and that, that's 20 years ago but I was really, really miserable, and I thought, what did I want to be? What did I see myself as being when I was young? I was a writer. That's, that's what I wanted. I didn't want this, looking at return sheets and squabbling with sales reps and going out every night, which sounds great until you have to go out every night. That
1: sounds awful.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and going out to more than one thing every night and having dinner at 2 a.m. No, it was terrible. So I started going to classes at the YMCA in New York, just trying to get back into writing stories again for the first time in, you know, 20 years. Well, probably not that long, maybe 15. And it was, yeah, when I started writing, it's like, okay, this is, I can still do this. not like riding a bike. I can actually still do this. And then, yeah, went to, well, when I met you in Iowa, I was, what, 30... Gosh, thirty-eight? Is that right? Thirty-nine? Yeah, I was in my late thirties. I was one of the oldest in my class in Iowa, and I'd already published *Queen of Beauty*, which I wrote the year I spent in Wellington. But even even before before all of this, when I was still living in London, so it was the early nineties, I was a publicist. And you know, when you leave the country and they say what's your profession, you know, you have to write down on forms. I wrote writer always wrote that and it was just sort of reminding myself that that's what I really was even when I wasn't
1: that's really uh that's a very writerly thing to have done to do writing those custom forms
0: also clearly a fiction writer lying
1: that's right that's exactly right but that's fine you know they probably believed you
0: well they're not really interested once I was coming in here (laughs) and they said so you're a writer what do you write you said words? I said novels because it's a horrible, I mean, oh, what are they about? It's like, no, no I can't get into this now. It's too, Ah, oh, they're about transformation and identity. Like, what do you want me six. to say? They're about sex <laughs> Really, I just, I didn't know what they wanted me to say. Or when people say, do you write fiction novels? It's like, hmm, yes, I do.
1: Mysteries? Mm, not really. Not as mysterious as they could be, some <laughs> of them. Wow, well, that has been amazing. We may have to split this into two episodes. Oh I feel gosh. like we've got two episodes worth of material. It's my fault for asking you so many questions. Was but there questions. were lots of things I wanted to hear about. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Is there anything uh, we haven't covered that you would like to say something about that I didn't ask you about and feels important?
0: No, but if anybody listens to this podcast, it would be nice to think they do. Could I just make a plea to them to... Buy New Zealand fiction. Published by New Zealand publishers. Buy it from a New Zealand bookshop. Because someone said to me today, Melanie Leville Moore, who works at Allen and Unwin, our our local publishing and writing community has a very fragile ecosystem. And we need people to support bookshops like this one. Whether you buy new or second hand, it's fine, but 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 buy local.
1: It's true and every time we have an event here I say if you like it here I beg you just buy a book and everyone looks at me as if I'm joking but I'm not. Mm-hmm. You know there's things the whole ecosystem does hang on by the most tenuous um, threads and you know when um, people say oh how much do you make when you sell a book and I say 50 cents mm-hmm. <laughs> and they think oh you're joking and i like no, but it's okay because I have a day job which pays me more than 50 cents a page. Last week I
0: had to go and uh, do a little video thing for Copyright Licensing New Zealand. They were doing a a video as part of a submission to government to talk about copyright licensing laws. And I had to say, I was talking about how if the copyright licensing laws are loosened, writers will make less money. and And then I went outside... Because the people, they were like, oh, I love the sound of your book. Oh, it sounds great. We should buy a copy. Oh, we... And I, I went outside and had to pay for my parking. And I thought, gosh, I would have had to sell five copies of my book to cover the parking for 40 minutes while I did that interview. It's, you know, kind of ridiculous. So yeah, people have no idea.
1: No, it's a hard life, the writing life, luckily. It's a hard knocks life for us. That's right, it is. It is, luckily, so rewarding, (laughs) so wonderful. Well, it's been incredible to talk to you. Thank you so much, Paula. This has been Ears Wide Open, which is a podcast project of the open book at 201 Ponsonby Road. If you're in Auckland, come on down, visit us and buy a book or two books or three books. And actually, there's a special on, probably the special will be over by the time I get this podcast out, which is buy anything in shop up in august and get a five dollar voucher to spend next time you come back so hurry on down and if you're not in auckland sign up for my book bag which sends you hand packed books every couple of months right to your doorstep